today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, and don't forget to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Ottawa may have paid too much for a pipeline that they can't get built. Surprised? And oh yeah, as time goes by, it's worth less. The President of the United States has lashed out at his intelligence chiefs, saying they don't know what they're talking about. They should go back to school. Where is he getting his info from? And I know you love your Starbucks, but is making coffee, uh, does that get you the president's chair? The former CEO is thinking of running for president. More on that coming up on the show. Thanks for listening. Ottawa may have paid more for the pipeline. That's the Trans Mountain Pipeline than originally thought. Uh, According to the parliamentary budget officer, you might remember that uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline was going through and was trying to go through. And uh, Kinder Morgan, the people that owned it at the time, uh, were becoming very hesitant about whether this would go through and and putting good money uh, after bad and such. So in in order to... uh, I guess, solve the issues and I put some confidence behind the project. Uh, we bought it. And now, of course, uh, we're finding out that, like a lot of things in life, we seem to pay way too much for them. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs Critic, analyst, GasBuddy.com. He's with us now. Dan, what are your thoughts when you hear this news? Well, my thoughts go immediately to what the government did not anticipate, and that's something that it could have averted, and that was the uh, federal court decision by the same actors who blocked the Northern Gateway, only to have that ultimately uh, reversed. Uh, I would have simply uh, given the advice to the Prime Minister that if it's a federal court saying no for all the same spurious reasons, simply take it to the Supreme Court of Canada and then move on with building this thing. The fact is that uh, the government has dithered. Uh, I suspect that uh, that may not have been a political move more than it was uh, a reality that the people around the Prime Minister are uh, ardent environmentalists who, at the end of the day, don't have a problem with squandering 4.5 billion bucks to keep this thing and kick it down the road as far as they can. So I'm, I'm misunderstanding here, Dan. Why, did we or did we not overpay for it? Or the fact that it's been delayed, it's gone down in value? Yeah, I think the fact is that if it doesn't get built, then there will be obviously a question as to its valuation. 4.6 billion, according to the parliamentary budget officer uh, and the office itself, uh, if we can get it built by December 31st, 2021. Uh, but that is not likely to happen. Therefore, it's not worth much more than $3.5 billion. So that's the, uh, uh, that's the really the crux of why I mentioned uh, having this thing tied up and hogtied before the courts uh, and bending over backwards for applicants who are interested in just damaging, destroying, and never seeing this pipeline built uh, have just uh, caused the government, or at least you and I, an additional uh, potential billion-dollar loss in terms of evaluation of this pipeline if it never gets built are certainly not up to the time of December 31st, 2021. And if I look at the time schedules on these things, it takes two years plus to build a pipeline. So we're, we're pretty much out of time. Uh, every day that it doesn't get built, does it go down in value? Or is it worth more? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's hard to value a pipeline in parts that have not been used. Uh, the Puget Sound terminals, where we'll be taking not just price or product from there, but also delivering some of that to the United States, uh, which currently receives a significant amount of our heavy oil, uh, even at uh, lower and higher prices. Uh, the, the valuation, I think, is still up in the air, but it is really predicated on how soon you can get this thing built. And uh, having a, 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 you know, a judicial strike, which you could have uh, appealed to the Supreme Court, and have this thing resolved once and for all, rather than having trendy judges uh, who have a particular uh, bent on these things try to block this. Now, if for a moment we just set aside the partisanship, and I'm for and I'm against the, the pipeline, at the end of the day, the public is exposed to a significant risk, a uh, risk that the uh, no-oil company or pipeline company is prepared to take in Canada. They're pulling their money out and sending it elsewhere. But be that as it may, the federal government's job here should have been to assert its absolute authority over this pipeline and if any province wants to suddenly say that it can regulate uh, oil or bitumen and uh, play all sorts of strategic games and i think they should have used the supreme court of canada bulldozer uh, to settle these matters once and for all because every single pipeline not that anybody else is going to ever build a pipeline in canada because you can't even get a natural gas pipeline built in this country without the usual suspects well funded by uh, foreign organizations coming in agitating making a complete mess of things. And here, of course, I'm referring to the coastal gas link, which uh, uh, had been approved time and time and time again, in which there was 
you know, the need for the RCMP to come in and dismantle the, uh, uh, you know, the obstructionists. Uh, so, you know, what we're really looking at here is, is a prospect that uh, the Canadian economy is going to take a hit. If for every $5 discount that uh, the Canadian heavy oil gets to West Texas Intermediate, so today it's selling for about 55 bucks a barrel, uh, you know, for every $5 discount, we lose about one-tenth of one percent of our economic output. Uh, in the past couple of months, uh, Scott, the average price has been about $15, a discount of 50 that's five, 10 That's a full percent drop in our economic activity. Out of 3 2% this year, I think it's one9 It means that our economy has been pretty much cut in half in terms of its GDP just on this pipeline alone. So anybody who thinks this is insignificant, better look at their paychecks and, of course, uh, recognize that uh, the uh, the interest and the import of getting our number one product to market is having a direct impact on our uh, on our prosperity and our bottom line. Don't worry about it, Dan. We're all going to be uh, working for the renewable energy industry any day now. Don't worry. Oh, yeah, no problem. And that, that'll really go down well today. I, I'm <laughs> noticing a lot of electric vehicles on the road today. And that before I get a torrent of people you know, trying to call me on their electric vehicles, Listen, I've driven around in my little Ford Escape uh, all the way from Niagara way up to Bob Cage in Ontario in the past, uh, well, it's, uh, it's about 96 hours, and I have not seen one electric vehicle on the highways. I've seen a few in the cities, but uh, we know uh, that uh, there's no there's no future for the time being, especially in what is now becoming the grand solar minimum. Get ready for colder weather in the next 10 to 12 years, not warmer weather. Um, how does the Prime Minister react to this information uh, fr- from the uh, budget officer, uh, does this put pressure on him to get it done, or, or just write it off as a rounding error? Yeah, it does. And in the CBC's whose report this came from is suggesting that uh, uh, 2021, December 31st, is the deadline. If you have got the pipeline up and running, uh, you're going to have a per- you know a pretty significant hit, not just in terms of the economy, but more importantly, uh, a billion dollar loss to the public treasury. I mean, that uh, borders on what one would consider to be irresponsible. But, you know, again, the prime minister is going to have to stop making conflicting signals. Either he's for building pipelines, uh, is prepared to do whatever he can to get it built as soon, uh, built as, soon as possible, or he can continue to try to navigate, uh, sit, on, sit on the fence uh, and try to play cute to both sides and talk about social license and, and you know, change the terminologies in which we are building pipelines. We have a uh, on the verge of being uh, of being passed, the Liberal government passed Bill C-69, which basically brings into it loosey-goosey language that is likely to be subject to uh, plenty of, uh, of, of court challenges and uh, to bring in things that are as irrelevant as one can find. And that's, uh, you know, the, the gender uh, implications, the impacts that have to be assessed before a pipeline can get built. Most companies who are ready to put up a half a billion to a billion bucks are going to tell Canada to take a heave ho. Uh, is this pipeline message resonating uh, with uh, voters across Canada, or is this still either you're in the industry, you know about it, or you know the politics of it and the environmental aspect of it, but other than that, people are pretty much ignorant of this stuff? Yeah, I think people are still uh, out to lunch on this, and, and that's fine. Um, but, you know, the, the fact is that when governments uh, start presenting real problems that they can't pay the bills, uh, and they're going to start cut, cutting back on programs, and I think you'll see the uh, the fur fly. I mean, frankly, uh, I think Canadians, those who do know this, are very, very concerned. Um, those who, uh, you know, happen to live on, uh, you know, Salt Spring Islands in British Columbia and live the lap of luxury and have big fat checks coming to them every month, uh, it's all about the environment. Unfortunately, they don't uh, take into account the deep damage this has been to the Canadian economy and how, you know, un- unfair it is, I think, for a next generation of young people who know that there is no future uh, in uh, in the renewables industry as far as Canada is concerned. It certainly won't meet the bulk of needs that Canadians will uh, will want over the next generation to uh, to make ends meet. And of course, here I'm not just talking about oil. If natural gas is now going to be the target and the subject of the uh, Rockefellers, Tides, the uh, Sierra Clubs, the Greenpeaces, uh, then if we're going to allow ourselves uh, to be whipsawed by these, uh, you know, fanatical organizations, then I think we should pretty much close and shut, you know, close, take down the tent in Canada and say, you're each on your own. And um, those who have electricity, great, wonderful, but the rest of you, uh, you're going to sink or swim. The Federation's in trouble. 
obviously, the PBO warns that further delays uh, threaten uh, this project, devaluating it, especially when you want to resell it, which was something that the prime minister said. Nothing like buying high and selling low, as they say. Um, but it, it, obviously, he has embarked on more consultation. Will we just end up at the same place after this consultation? Um, well, the consultation, one part of it's done. The federal government now needs to engage in consultation. That could be another six or seven months. They're going to try to kick this past the next federal election. And if they get a mandate, um, you know, there's 30, according to my former campaign manager, who runs Main Street uh, polling uh, just a few hours ago, came out and said, yeah, the, the Liberals have a, a 2% lead. Um, and if you look at uh, uh, who's supporting, uh, you know, 11.5% is voting NDP, another 6 or 7% voting Green. That's almost 60% uh, of Canadians uh, don't have a problem with, uh, you know, throwing a billion bucks in the, in the garbage. And you think that, uh, you know, we can, uh, we can make our economy run on, uh, uh, you know, on, on, on pixie dust and, uh, and, and run, uh, you know, economy based on, uh, on all sorts of wonderful new brave technologies and ideas that the rest of the world is taking advantage of, but we're not able to. So I suspect that Canadians uh, may not be aware of the fact that, uh, you know, the come post-election, this this particular project, I think, uh, will not get passed. It'll be get mothballed, uh, or worse, it might wind up being uh, a white elephant. How will Alberta react to this report? Well, that's where I'm going to be putting my money towards uh, major amounts of popcorn being eaten in the month of April, because I think uh, there is going to be a new government there, and Jason Kenney's not going to put up with this nonsense. Um, I think Vancouver and... Uh, uh, you know, the uh, Horgan's Heroes, uh, the premier uh, in that province. Horgan's uh, Heroes. Dan, uh, you know, very uh, good. <laughs> Hogan. Yeah, I got um, it. <laughs> I know nothing. Where did that come from? Did you did you did you come up with that or did you read that somewhere? No, no, no. That's uh, just it's I've been talking. I've had actually exchanges with the premier who wasn't aware of the fact that Trans Mountain Pipeline would also send 55,000 barrels of gasoline and diesel to uh, Vancouver, which, by the way, today is paying at least a 16 cent a liter premium over Washington state refineries when you take away taxes, et cetera, because they don't have enough uh, refinery capacity. Here's a pipeline that would be delivering gasoline to them at a savings of 14 cents a liter, and they're still in denial. So I had a debate with the, with the premier uh, through Radio NL uh, in Kamloops, and it uh, turned out he was completely oblivious to what, what, the, what the pipeline was all about. But again, there's a lot of disinformation coming from the green side, so I'm not surprised, but that's what got him elected, and I see that he's going to be holding on to power as a result of a by-election last evening. So I think the fur is going to fly, as I said earlier, between Alberta and B.C., and Mr. Kenny is not going to uh, hold back on his option. I think it's uh, Bill 12, uh, which uh, will allow them to curtail the amount of gasoline going into that province. So uh, if Vancouver wants to play uh, hardball, uh, and it's uh, particularly Victoria and Vancouver, I would expect that uh, the Premier's first act of business will be to scrap the carbon tax in that province, second of all, get rid of the caps uh, on emissions, and third, uh, cut off gasoline supplies to Vancouver. Uh, there are a lot of other people, a lot of other takers who will buy uh, Alberta gasoline. So that, to me, is going to set the stage for a very interesting summer. Um, if those in Vancouver have no problems with blocking pipelines, then they can also go without gasoline and diesel and fuel and jet fuel and the like to make their economy roll. Do you think it will get to that point if uh, yep. Jason Kenney's elected? Absolutely. I mean, I don't think it's, uh, I mean, there's always a chance for, you know, cooler heads to prevail, but I think Alberta's bent over backwards here. I'm an Ontarian. I have no skin in the game. But the shenanigans by the B.C. government and uh, the minority in that province that have basically held up uh, the and frustrated uh, an important vital sector for the entire Canadian economy that benefits everybody has got to come to an end. If Trudeau won't stand up for Canadian oil and Canadian interests, then I guess Mr. Kenny will have to do it. But it's guaranteed that, uh, in my view, uh, this uh, this is going to be making for some very interesting times. What the Notley government threatened to do last year with that bill will, in fact, be uh, implemented by uh, the uh, the new premier, especially uh, when he's already made it very clear that he uh, will do exactly what Peter Lougheed did back in 1980 when Ottawa, you know, really imposed a, a rather uh, arbitrary and, and very uh, and very damaging national energy program on that province. What is the next bet? Uh, the next big date or issue with the, uh, uh, the with the Kinder Morgwell Trans Mountain Pipeline? Uh, well, I think when the federal government decides to make the announcement that it 
itself will engage in consultations. The consultations between the NEB and all the other other organizations, I think, has already been conducted. Yeah. What should have happened at the same time, simultaneously, is the federal government and I. What we're now Jan, we're, we're February tomorrow morning, um, or this evening. Uh, that would mean six months of consultations. Uh, takes you well into the summer months, at which point we're into an election. So I don't think uh, the federal government is in any rush. This is going to get kicked past the federal election. And as I said, if the federal liberals happen to hold on to power, uh, even if it's a minority government, uh, then they're going to uh, use their friends in the bloc, their friends in the Green, uh, their friends in the NDP, what's left of those parties after the election, uh, to be able to con- uh, con- you know, continue down this road of dithering at the expense of the Canadian economy and certainly at uh, the expense, direct expense of taxpayers who now uh, will see a loss on that $4.5 billion, at least a billion dollars, uh, because of the unnecessary and deliberate delays by the federal Liberal government. Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs critic, analyst, GasBuddy.com. As always, Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good to be here. Have a great afternoon, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Donald Trump continues to undermine the work of the uh, intelligence community uh, and says, obviously, they should they should go back to school. Where is he getting his information from now that we know where they're getting theirs from? That, that of course, is a good question. Um, it's hard to say for sure. I, I would my my suspicion would be that most of it he, he's told us publicly that he he trusts himself and his instinct. That's not a good way to do this kind of thing. Of course, the another question is: Does some of it, and it's hard to even have to say this, but is some of it coming from friends of his in Russia? I I don't know. We just learned recently he had a yet another secret meeting with Vladimir Putin where no one else was there, so we don't know what's going on. Uh, but uh, it's it's a problem that he's not relying on experts in the United States intelligence community. How long can he stand up in front of Americans and say and say those people have to go back to school without providing any sort of proof of what he's talking about? Until Republicans in Congress really forcefully rein him in. Um, we're seeing some signs of that. Uh, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who's been a, a pretty steadfast ally of the president and not a critic, in the last couple of days has said has publicly stood against the president on policy in the Middle East and Syria and Afghanistan. Other Republicans are raising questions about some about these attacks on in the intelligence community. If they are moved to take serious action, that would have an effect. So far, I would say it's not enough, but it is good to see that they're at least speaking out against this. Is it possible for the president to talk to people? <laughs> like Putin, whoever, um, without anyone in the White House knowing about it? Apparently, yes. I mean, it's astounding. I I saw this story the other day, and it was confusing because I thought I was reading about something I already knew. This meeting he had with Vladimir Putin, where apparently the only other American there was the president's wife. But it was a new story. And the translator. That was in the story about the translator as well. Um, Yes, that's right. So... You know, maybe there's more. We know that this happened and we just found out about it. Uh, it's very strange. The What's bizarre to me, I mean, it would be strange for any president, but especially this president, when there are, are real questions about his campaign's involvement with Russia during the 2016 election, it just creates an obvious bad look. It's It's hard to understand why someone would take that risk. I mean, I'd like to see an explanation. Maybe there's something that makes this sound better than it is, but it's it's confusing. It's not the first time that he has uh, uh, countered to what his intelligence agencies have said. Why does this stand out? Um, I think to see a number of uh, intelligence experts so consistently in so many areas take an approach different than the president's is pretty, uh, I think, is pretty remarkable. Um, I think also because I think for media coverage, especially here in the U.S., there's, you know, journalists probably tend to get in sort of a a pattern. And they the the recent coverage has been about Trump's problems, you know, in the context of the shutdown here in the United States, the government shutdown and his uh, his problems with the Speaker of the House, Pelosi, sort of winning over the shutdown. 
So I think this this sort of leads into that. There's kind of a been a pattern of bad news for Trump, and this is more of that. You're right, it's not completely new. But it is striking to see this consistent message from intelligence experts, no, we don't agree with you on whether it's Iran or ISIS or North Korea or the southern border, southern border or Russia or China. It's just a consistent message. Uh, there, there was rumor floating around yesterday that uh, these uh, this community was going to get together and put all of their do- uh, all of their thoughts on a common document, but then they backed away from this. Why would that be? Oh, I didn't see that specifically, but I would. You mean that the intelligence yes. experts would put? Uh, yeah. So they're obviously in an uncomfortable position. Uh, intelligence experts are trained to be nonpartisan. They are devel- they're delivering expert analysis. They don't want to take a particular political view on anything they're just giving their view they're giving their their analysis uh it's uncomfortable for them and i'm i think they're caught between two things here on the one hand they want to, they they're seeing like the rest of us a president who is taking very strange positions and ones that they that they believe may endanger national security at the same time they want to be careful though and not appear to be partisan in delivering that information it, right. it's hard to to reconcile those two things. I think they're doing the best they can. Plus, with that, you just give the president more ammo to, to fling it back. If you get into that, uh, if you get into that pit, you're, you're playing in the same game, aren't you? That's, of course, a good point. So the president, this is a classic tactic of would-be authoritarians. The, there's a good book called How Democracies Die, written by two professors who study authoritarian regimes, and they talk about how authoritarians like to uh, knock out objective observers, the referees, as they call them, and how democracies die, whether mm. it's people in law enforcement or the courts or intelligence experts. So right, Trump likes to have this kind of enemy to play with, whether it's the press or intelligence community. And you're right, you, you certainly don't want to give him further ammunition to, to do that. And I think they're trying to be as careful as possible not to take on the president directly. For instance, when the director of national intelligence was asked by a senator about this meeting that the president had with Vladimir Putin, the director of national intelligence said, let's talk about that separately. Let's talk about that in a non-public session. Hmm. Uh, has it got to the point where Americans are going to have to decide who they believe, whether they believe the president or his security team? Uh, I hope not. That's, of course, a very uncomfortable situation. But, I, I mean, I guess we're left with no choice. That's... Uh, that's something that Republicans in Congress are starting to recognize, too. And to their credit, it looks like they're choosing uh, the security experts. Uh, even, as I mentioned before, somebody, a strong partisan supporter of, of the president's, like Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, is not deferring to him on this. So it's it's unfortunate that this choice is being put before Americans and members of Congress. But, as I say, one heartening piece of evidence is that some Republicans or the Republicans I've seen who have spoken are are standing with the national security experts, with the intelligence experts. And that's unfortunate they have to make that choice, but they are doing it. Whenever we have these conversations, how and, and the questions asked, how will Americans react? It's always, you know, depends who you ask, the base, yeah. this sort of thing. But even the base, whether, you know, he, he's now annoyed uh, government workers, you know, with with what's going on with Putin and uh, security officials, that can't sit well with those in the veteran community. Is he whittling away at this base? You, you would think so. What you're saying makes logical sense. I think the unfortunate reality is what we're seeing from Donald Trump's base is that they're acting more like cult members than members of a constitutional democracy. What I mean by that is rather than when when their own views clash with the leaders' views, they change their views. Even if it's something like like Russia, I mean, you know, for the last for decades the Republican Party has been tough on Russia, whether the Soviet Union or uh the post Soviet Russia. Um, but so you would expect that if they have a president who defers to Russia, they would reject that. But what we see happening is Donald Trump supporters adjust their views to match his. Now it's worth, of course, it's important to emphasize that's not a majority of the country. Yeah. Um, is it 30%, 35%? I don't know. It's not a majority, but it's certainly, uh, that's, it's strange to see and it's, it's a problem. 
At what point do the Republicans look deeper than the next election and say, you know, if this goes even more off the rails, we could be damaged for decades? Um, at what point do they say this isn't good for us, let alone, you know, the, getting reelected? Or- oh, yeah. I'm sure they've had those conversations for quite some time. And that's been sometimes you hear that publicly. Uh, Senator Corker from Tennessee, who's no longer in the Senate, but when he was in the Senate a year or two ago, said he was concerned this would lead to a national security crisis, maybe even a world war. Uh, Senator Flake, who's also left the Senate, said similar things. I think they were just saying publicly what their colleagues think as well. Um, I don't know what it would take to move them to action, but it, I think we it's no no objective observer could fail to see just how bizarre this presidency has been and how dangerous it's been. And Republican members of Congress recognize it just as the rest of us do. What's What's hard to see is what will move them to act. I'm not sure about that, but I'm sure they've had these conversations for quite some time. Uh, Let's start with the North Korean situation. Of course, it was all about uh, uh, easing tensions and and threats of nuclear war and missile testing that seemed to be going on on an ongoing basis. Uh, The president says uh, that that things are the best that they've ever been with North Korea. Is he wrong there? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think they're better than when they were at the beginning of Donald Trump's presidency, the first year when he was involved in this kind of nuclear brinksmanship over Twitter and was, and was talking, he made a statement once, what was it about, like, fire, fire and fury descending on North Korea. So right. it's good that we've backed away from that. It's good that we're not hearing the president threatening. It's threatening good he's people. not fighting with them. Yes, that is good. Um, I think the problem, though, is the way he's gotten there is based on uh, self-deception or, or deception of others, or both. His, you know, he's he's claimed incorrectly, as the intelligence experts have reminded us over the last couple of days. He's claimed that North Korea has agreed to abandon its nuclear weapons. Of course, that's not happening. But I guess the benefit of that, as I say, is that the president has moved away from militaristic rhetoric. Um, the downside is it's it's just not true. Um, another meeting with Kim Jong-un. Uh, they're talking about February. I'm guessing more pomp and circumstance. What do you think will happen with that? I think the concern that, that people have, um, including Republicans in Congress, is what will the president give away? At this point, he's sort of got to maintain this illusion that he's gaining something or that he did convince the North Koreans to give away something. They didn't. Um what will he have to give them in order to maintain this pretense? Um, ISIS, another issue. He's, he says ISIS has been defeated um, until what? Another attack somewhere? How, how can you? How can? How, how can he back these statements up? It's e- even I mean, even even a couple of weeks from now, even a month from now. I happened. I remember a week or so ago, the vice president made a statement about this as well. On that same day, a number of Americans were killed right. by an ISIS attack. Uh, so we're reminded of this in really stark terms. I mean, the, ISIS has lost ground. That's good. That's something to be um, to be appreciated. ISIS no longer controls uh, large swaths of territory in Iraq and Syria. But that doesn't mean they're not a threat. And it's, of course, a mistake to suggest otherwise. Uh, national security experts know this. Republicans in Congress know this as well. Uh, the president saying otherwise is a mistake, and it's dangerous for Americans. It's dangerous for others who are threatened by ISIS. It's dangerous for American allies who are fighting against ISIS. And again, the Senate Majority Leader recognizes that he's he's taking action to try to prevent the president from. Uh, a precipitous withdrawal in Syria. It reminds me of Mission Accomplished across the yes. front of that ship. Um, That's, of course, a good comparison, yes. What will the president say when there's another ISIS attack? Will he say, well, just fringe groups, rogue elements, it's not the same thing? Uh, again, how, can you, how do you walk something like that That's back? That's a good point. So, again, you're, you're asking questions based on logic. <laughs> this is how normally we proceed. This is a president who's not constrained by that. Yeah. He'll simply ignore it or spin it, as you say. And when you're not, when you don't worry about facts, you can say whatever you want. It's you know what amazes really me, Chris? You know what amazes me, Chris, is how calmly you say that. <laughs> 
because because you've just got used to it. It's just the norm now. Well, I refuse to get used to it. I think we can never get used to it. Good um, point. I tr- but your your observation is, is a good one, and it makes me sad that I'm forced to speak this way about about these things. But um, it's it has to be recognized. It should never be accepted as normal. Uh, let's change gears a little bit. Uh, we've heard lots uh, from the CEO of Starbucks of late, and yeah. and how he's had it. And, and I'm, you know, I don't know about down there, but up here, it's the same thing. It's either the extreme left or it's the extreme right, and 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 the the, the silent majority in the middle seems to be unrepresented. How is this going over with this guy, seemingly or, or talking about putting his hat in the ring? I think it's hard to say for sure until you see polling or some kind of election results. If he's running as an independent, he won't be in primaries. I think the main reaction we've seen so far, well, two reactions. One is people on the left, people in the Democratic Party don't like this. They're all upset. I couldn't, I couldn't believe, yeah, I was watching Stephen Colbert last night, who yeah. obviously takes his show to the left and, and, and every night rams the president, which is funny to watch. But, man, yeah. he, he, was, he was making fun of this guy because he's just so worried it's going to split the vote. They're right. So Democrats, people on the left, or even anti-Trump Republicans, um, which are a fair number, um, are concerned that if uh, there's an independent bid, this could you know, make it easier for Trump to win. And the president seems to agree because the president and his supporters uh, are yeah. encouraging Schultz to run. Yeah. So that's been the main reaction. Democrats don't like it, or people who, who want Trump to lose don't like it. Donald Trump and his supporters seem to be encouraging it. But I think, you know, we, we need to see more um, about how is he even going to be a viable candidate? Is he someone who's going to get any significant percentage of the vote? I think it's really hard to know that. I think what's fascinating, I think what's fascinating here, though, is someone of his prominence and obviously a very, very successful businessman, whether you like his company or not, uh, that someone is standing up and publicly saying all of this. Yeah, and of course gets a platform to do so. Yeah, you know because of his because of his background. I think uh, you know that's part of the reaction. I think on the left to this is he's obviously he's not identical to Donald Trump, but to see another businessman coming forward and saying I'm qualified to run based on my business success, he's obviously a genuinely successful businessman in a way that the president has not been. But that's something that gives people pause. I think. Critics from the from the Democratic Party. So are people saying, are going to well, say. So people are going to say. You know what? Uh, even though we put Trump in there to uh, to uh, to distract, not distract, but to uh, disrupt things, uh, we want to go back to now a status quo politician. We're not into that businessman stuff. Even though, I mean, my goodness, as far as credibility, one certainly has more than the other. Even in the business true. world, they shouldn't be lumped together. They're not the same. But I there there may be right. There may be a. A yearning for normalcy. I don't know. I'd be interested, as I say, to see some polling. I haven't really seen any to see just, you know, how significant this his support will be. All right. Chris Edelson has been with us, Assistant Professor of School of Public Affairs, American University. Chris continues to be a fascinating discussion. Thanks so oh. much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it, too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. With 2020 approaching, with 2020 approaching, uh, some Democratic leadership candidates have come forward. One person has come through as an independent and is getting a lot of attention. That person is Howard Schultz. He is the former CEO of Starbucks. Let's bring in Jacob Neilheisel, uh, Assistant Professor of Political Science, University of Buffalo College of Arts and Sciences, and is with us now. Jacob, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Happy to be on the show. Your thoughts on uh, Schultz? Uh, I guess he's not in the race by any means at this point, but certainly uh, floating trial balloons. Your thoughts on what you've heard from him? Oh, I think he's positioned in an interesting way to make a lot of people nervous, but uh, clearly uh, is making the, the left a bit more nervous than the right currently. Um, you know, as a political scientist, I'm, I'm skeptical of, of anyone coming in to, to say that they're likely to be a spoiler effect. Historically, that has not happened. Uh, 92 with Ross Perot, uh, 2000 with uh, Nader. 
probably weren't uh, determinative, but um, again, that, that threat is always something we're going to be talking about. You know, you bring up a valid point there, Jacob, but on the other hand, um, have we been in a situation where we are now? I mean, have we been in a similar situation where we live in such a land of extremes? Yeah, that's, uh, that's the, uh, the interesting uh, hitch there. Um, again, the, the elections I talked about were sort of politics as usual. I think we're in a very different uh, world qualitatively post-2016. Uh, where uh, ideology is, is something that's very much at the fore, and, and we're definitely exploring different parts of the, the political spectrum than we've seen before. And so a, a candidate entry sort of strategically pitched to take some of maybe the, the pro-business libertarian elements of the Republican Party away, coupled with more the, the socially liberal elements of the Democratic Party, could actually um, be something new. Uh, we live in a land extremes. A land of extremes. It seems the left is going farther to the left. The right is going farther to the right. Is anyone there representing the center? Uh, right now, that's it's a very, <laughs> very good question, and, and it's actually very difficult for me to come up with anyone who uh, does occupy that middle ground. Um, does he at least? Does, does, does Schultz at least? Uh, does Schultz at least bring this to people's attention? I think that any kind of airtime he's going to get, um, and again, it might be a, a kind of blip. We see this pretty often in the, the run-up to a primary season uh, where, you know, you have someone who gets a ton of attention and then that plummets and the next person gets the, the, the public attention. And, you know, some of that's just sort of the, the media cycle looking for that next big thing. If he continues to stay in, stay in the news cycle, I think that uh, you will see more attention coming to the, the idea of where are the centrists in American politics. Uh, I interrupted you there. I apologize. You were talking about reasons for the extremes. Do you want to expand on that? Uh, just that uh, because of, well, I think primaries have been blamed perhaps a bit too much, but because of the idea that uh, those who come out to vote are usually those who have an ideology that's somewhat more entrenched, there's a reason why uh, politicians are paying more attention to the extremes because, well, that's where the votes are. Um, you would think about you know, maybe the median voter, right? We pitch everything toward the middle the middle doesn't really vote all that often. And so maybe if we have a candidate occupying that grounds and appealing to the middle explicitly, then maybe they become more in play. As an independent, does you know does any independent ever have a chance to become president? <laughs> well, you know, traditionally I would say no. It's uh, very rare for independents to do well in American politics. You know, obviously there have been uh, a few runs of note, but uh, in terms of winning uh, the presidency, that's, that's a... A fairly rare event. Um, again, we're in a, a post-2016 world where we would have seen the rise of a, a TV star, a uh, reality TV star as the President of the United States. So I think uh, many of the things that we thought were previously out of play may actually be something worth considering. Uh, whether uh, Schultz is, uh, uh, has a chance of, of getting elected or making any ground or not, is his message resonating with people? And that is, you know, he's he's pretty much disgusted with the extremes on both sides, and everyone has forgot about that silent majority. That's a great question. I think we'd need to, to look at the polls to see, uh, one, whether people are even paying attention to him, and two, whether uh, the issue positions that he's articulated has a, a fair amount of support. Um, you know, just looking at the external indicators we have, certainly he's garnered enough attention for folks, particularly on the left, to, you know, announce or encourage boycotts of Starbucks products. Uh, and so I, I think that there is enough worry that he could be a player in this game. Uh, obviously, as you mentioned, Democrats not happy about this. Uh, Donald Trump pretty much egging the guy on to run because he knows this will split the, the left vote. I, I'm amazed at how hostile the left seems to have become over this guy, even in a short period of time. I'm, uh, I w- was uh, just earlier commenting about watching Stephen Colbert last night, and he was slagging the hell out of the guy uh, because he was worried he was going to split the Democrat vote. What can the other two parties, specifically the Dems, learn from what Schultz is saying, rather than slagging him, it oh, almost it almost seems it almost seems they're reacting to him the same way they reacted to Trump. Instead of trying to figure out why they picked him instead of their candidate, they're just pointing out his obvious faults. In, in some ways, there, there is a, a similar kind of reaction um, where you know, get this guy out of here. There's too many parallels to Trump, right? Someone from the business world. Um, you know, it's an awkward position for them to be in. I think they're more used to. Folks on the right boycotting Starbucks over Christmas cups and the like. Um, so it's a, it's an interesting situation for them to be in. And I'm not sure that 
the voices that we've heard so far are really representative of the, the Democratic Party. Uh, they do seem to be on, on more of the fringes. I think Center for American Progress, one of their representatives, something like that. Um, I'm not sure that the parties are really in any position to take the lessons of anything going on right now. They seem to be pretty entrenched in their current strategies. Uh, we remember everybody, uh, and again, lots question how how Trump got elected. Uh, people were looking for disrupt disruption. People were looking for something other than the status quo. Populate uh, po- uh, politician, uh, put a business guy in there, whoever. Uh, again, just somebody to disrupt. Do you get the feeling that people would be comparing the CEO of Starbucks or the former CEO of Starbucks to uh, Donald Trump in the sense that they're both in business? Or are they ready to go back to a traditional standard politician? I think that's an open question. Uh, we do see uh, something in American politics that has been termed leapfrog representation, where uh, we have a tendency to kind of run to extremes. Uh, we, we go in one direction, perhaps you know, some elements aren't excited with that, and then we make a complete 180. And so American politics does seem to, to admit of these extreme swings every now and again, and uh, the traditional logic would be that uh, the circumstances are ripe for more of a mainstream politician to to make a, a bigger charge for 2020. Uh, do, do you get the feeling that Americans just want things to calm down? They're just exhausted with this. They're uh, they're fatigued from uh, stuff that that just doesn't seem to matter in their day to day lives. I think there's certainly some of that, and we, we have some polling indicators that would suggest that that is the case. But at the same time, we have these other questions from the, the nationwide polls that suggest that things like partisan hatred are actually on the rise. They ask a question about, uh, you know, would you be sad if your son or daughter dated somebody who was of the polit- other political party? We've actually seen a rise in yes answers to that. And wow. so uh, there's mixed signals from the American public where... They're upset with the animus that seems to be in American politics, but at the same time, they want their team to win. And it's difficult to reconcile that in the aggregate. Uh, do you think we will ever see a third party in the American system? A uh, serious third party? Um, great question. I, I think that institutionally, uh, everything is set up to keep third parties out uh, or to, to marginalize their contributions to the American political system. Uh, we've had, you know, third parties that sort of almost got there or were a bit of a player. And the typical thing that happens is that the two major parties move to cut them out of the system. Um, in some areas of the country, we have uh, mergers go on. So the, the typical example in American politics is the Minnesota Democratic Party is the Democratic Farmer Labor Party. It's comprised of right. a major party and two mining parties, really kind of in name only. And so I think that's emblematic of what happens when a third-party challenger makes a good run, and that's the major parties move to cut them out. Uh, will the points that perhaps this third person is making resonate with the others? And I'm repeating myself in that question, but I've got a quote here from Schultz that says, I think like most people, I've just become bored with the pres- with President Trump and his tweets. Do you think that's valid? Or do you think, oh, he's, sto- do you think he's stoking the fire enough that people just want to fight? People are angry, they just want to fight. Again, there's the, the fact that the American public seems to be of two minds about these things. We would like to see the animus go away, but then we really do like our side to win. And so until the American public as a whole is able to figure out some way out of those two um, seemingly contradictory positions, uh, it's not clear that we want something other than a, a tweeter-in-chief. Uh, I'm getting your impression and that from others that most would just kind of blow all of this off in the sense that, you know, uh, Schultz really doesn't have a chance um, other than, of course, perhaps splitting uh, the left vote. Are you surprised he's got the attention of the president already? Um, are, you know, I mean, he, he already uh, Trump already tweeting out that he doesn't have the guts to run for president. He agrees he's not the smartest person, which is, I guess, to quote a quote right from Schultz. Um, why even talk about this guy if he's barely a blip on the radar? Uh, well, I think that's that is more of an inroads into to who Trump is than anything else. Um, you know, we talk a lot about strategy, and then there's what Trump does. You know, he sticks with the shut or shut down, you know, far longer than I think uh, his party had a stomach for it. A number of other things where we would say that, you know, a typical politician would do this in these circumstances. Trump isn't really doing that. And so I'm not sure how much to read into his actions personally as a, a statement about Schultz's viability long term. 
Do you think anything he says could hurt him in that regard? Uh, or, you know, again, it's Trump being Trump. <laughs> well, I mean, traditionally, again, I would say yes. You know, they, these things do have a, a tendency to backfire on him. But because of the 24-hour news cycle, um, there'll be something else tomorrow or the day after that occupies everyone's attention, and it kind of goes away, except if you're really paying attention. Um, and so... I think it's become a, a low-risk strategy for him because there's just so much that grabs the attention and, and pulls it in different ways. Are there uh, will will Schultz spawn others, but within perhaps either party, uh, trying to grab that sort of centrist view of things? Will will some listen to him and think, well, okay, I mean, that guy's not going to make it happen, but I could take that message and make it happen. I certainly think we'll, we'll see other, uh, I hasten to say imitators, but others who are trying to occupy that space. I think that just about every expert out there sees that there's sort of a missing middle in American politics and may have the hope that we could get those people excited about some candidate, any candidate who occupies something of a middle ground. Uh, the problem is every time we have that hope, those are kind of dashed when we see what the turnout figures actually look like among people who are pretty centrist in terms of their ideology. Uh, Schultz was going on and saying, you know, looking in the mirror, is, is this what you want? Is this what you want out of America? Or, you know, are you not bored with this? Are you not fatigued with this? Do you think that message will resonate if someone chooses to use it for the next election? Quite possibly. <laughs> um, uh, one of the things we see out of field experiments and, and the work on American politics is that people do actually react to shame pretty well. Um, this is most specifically in the context of voting. Um, you can do experiments where you can shame people into voting by saying that your neighbors are voting at higher levels than you are. And that actually does seem to work fairly well. So uh, shame is a major motivator, it seems, in American politics. Uh, he goes on to say, this is Schultz. I don't care if you're a Democrat, independent, libertarian, Republican. Bring me your ideas. I will be an independent person who will embrace those ideas because I am not in any way in bed with a party. Again, is the team too strong to get people to, to, to say, I'm not going to be a sheep anymore? I, I really do think that uh, the teams are, are pretty strong at this point. Um, you know, we often talk about weak parties in the United States, but really strong partisanship, that sort of tribal aspect. It's still very much with us, and I don't think people are, are quite done wanting to see their side win. So, again, they're, they're of two minds uh, about these kinds of things. Um, that being said, um, I said for a long time in the run-up to the 2016 presidency that it wouldn't be Trump who would have the nomination, but then it would most certainly not be Trump who won. And, well, here we are. So um, maybe we are in a brave new world. Uh, it, are we at a tipping point with the shutdown and the backtrack on that? The wall doesn't really seem at this point to be built. There's going to be a State of the Union addressed before the deadline of the government closing again. Uh, what does Trump have to do to start winning again? Uh, that's a great question. I, I think that it would be well, difficult to say, um, given that his support is, is pretty low. Those who really like Trump, there's probably not much wavering there. But in terms of folks who could potentially be persuadable, I don't think another shutdown is the way to get those folks back on Trump's side. So he's going to have to figure out something else, um, and he may have to figure out a way to maybe cut a deal with Pelosi and and Schumer um, that likely is going to anger his base. So I think the only way more money for a border wall um, or any kind of more money for support for border uh, security it's going to come out with a, a cost of um, some kind of money for the dreamers. So how how do you think he's going to position the, the, the State of the Union, especially with the shutdown looming? That's a great question. Um, I think you're going to see kind of the same kind of Trump trotted out who um, made the announcement that the government was going to, to reopen. He really did try to frame that as a victory. We've won. You know, we're bringing them to the table I think he's probably going to continue in that kind of uh, vein, um, perhaps contrary to, to evidence that suggests that the Democrats really aren't moving and that his, his deal-making is faltering in that regard. Who uh, is at the advantage right now, the Democrats or the Republicans? Absolutely, uh, I think Democrats are advantaged. They're, they're coming off a win in 2018 that was um, not quite historic, but certainly in the mix of, of a bigger wave elections that we've had. So they have a lot of momentum going in, and there haven't been a lot of policy victories on the right. So I think um, you know, everybody is taking a hit right now because of the shutdown, Democrats and Republicans. Republicans are faring far worse. 
Uh, how how do you keep from getting um, – uh, how do the Democrats stop from getting stuck in the Trump trap? Again, some will say the first two years of of Trump's presidency, they spent too much time uh, licking up the spilt milk in their wounds instead of really uh, zeroing in on, on what they had to do. Uh, you know, we're seeing this with with uh, Trump's reaction to the the former CFO of Starbucks. He's already starting to to slag him, trying to draw him in. The Democrats have a win with with with, with what you just mentioned. How do they keep that momentum and not get sucked into, uh, you know, again seeing Trump in the Oval right. Office with Pelosi and and Schumer and I'm going to take responsibility. You know, you can't buy that kind of support for the Democrats. How do they how do they keep that momentum moving? That's a great question. I think Pelosi is a pretty good tactician, um, and she continued to be a foil uh, for Trump and the Democrats uh, or Republicans. That being said, though, um, Trump has a peculiar way of really making Democrats um, bringing them to positions that get a lot of airtime that are bad optics. And so, if they can avoid those kind of own goals, um, I think that just keeping the pressure on as part of that loyal opposition, so to speak, uh, will be sufficient to propel them to a decent chance at a 2020. Um, again, people don't really expect the opposition party to be doing a whole lot other than opposing. If they happen to win back the presidency, if they happen to take back the Senate, then they're going to be in a position where they have to put wins on the board. And I think that's where Republican brand took a lot of a hit. When they had unified government for a couple of years, they really didn't get a lot of wins. That's fascinating. How do you think the latter part of his term, uh, this term, will go for him? Obviously, he's he's experienced some experiencing some congestion now. Nancy Pelosi has a lot more power. Uh, is he better when he's out in front with a win and 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 has to take credit for everything, or is he better when he's got someone to battle and blame these mistakes on? I think he's pretty good when he's got someone to battle. That being said, um, institutionally, um, I think he's kind of a lame duck going forward. Um, we've seen a lot of overtures from Democrats in the House sort of staffing up those key committees that can really lay challenge to Trump and his administration with people who are very vocal in opposition to him. So even if uh, they don't really get serious about impeachment or anything like that, I think he's continually going to have to be putting out fires and putting key people on the Hill to sort of defend the administration against a lot of these charges the Democrats are going to bring. Jacob Nyheisel has been with us, Assistant Professor of Political Science, University of Buffalo College of Arts and Sciences. Jacob, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.